Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your need to know. A tale of two cities, Hong Kong faces violent protests as Beijing celebrates 70 years of communist rule with military prowess. I spy a Credit Suisse executive resigns for snooping on a colleague and payment approved. China makes way for PayPal, but competition is fierce. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, pinch punch first of the month. Yes, it's the first of October and the first day, of course, of the final trading quarter of the year. We've wrapped up what I've seen headlined numerous times as the weakest quarter of the year. I tell you what week to some is resilient to others right now. September, typically a pretty volatile month. The Dow and the S&P 500 here in the United States eking out gains of 1% plus. Admittedly, the Nasdaq's flat, but I don't think that's bad considering some of the risk events we've faced in the last quarter. Rising US-Iran tensions, protests as we're going to discuss shortly in Hong Kong, the Saudi oil attacks, not to mention, of course, the developing political crisis in D.C. with the impeachment inquiry surrounding President Trump. Investors politely ignoring this thing for now, I think, and will continue to do so unless something shifts in the Senate. For now, the most important thing remains the trade war and escalation risks there. And a timely warning, in fact, this morning on that front, the World Trade Organization slashing its forecast for global trade going forward, blaming the tariff tensions between the United States and China. Now, for all the sound and fury on the trade front, I have to say, at least in aggregate, and I'm couching myself here, U.S. stocks have well and truly outperformed. Take a look at what we've seen year to date for the Dow, up almost 15%. The Nasdaq, in fact, the tech-heavy sector, up 18%. That, despite all the warnings from the bond market here, the flight into safety assets in particular, However, throwing December 2018's performance, and you have to deduct a whole chunk of that, but we're still up 5% and 8% respectively, so since the beginning of December. Looking ahead, though, the key here is, and I will reiterate this time and time again, Q4 depends on a resolution or at least a sustained ceasefire on trade. And for today, at least, I have to say, for China specifically, Beijing displaying nothing but confidence about the future. That's where we're going to kick off the drivers. Let's get to it. Parades in Beijing. Protests, meanwhile, in Hong Kong, marking the 70th anniversary of Communist Party rule. You can see the stark divide between the mood on the Chinese mainland and that in the special administrative region of Hong Kong. While the flags fly in Beijing, pro-democracy demonstrators have been clashing violently with riot police throughout the day there. One protester shot in the chest by a police officer just hours ago. 
Let's talk this through. Anna Corrin is in Hong Kong for us. David Culver is over in Beijing. Anna, I want to begin with you. Protests, I believe, in eight out of the 18 districts there. Just talk us through what we've seen over the last several hours and bring us up to date. Well, Julia, as you can see, there is a fire behind me. It blew up just as you were talking in your intro. Uh, protesters have, have set firebombs to Sham Shui Po Police Station. They are now planning and they have lit the other entrance alight as well. So there are fires, simultaneous fires going off here in Sham Shui Po. It is just gone 9 p.m. here in Hong Kong. It has been a, a long and violent day, and the violence has not ended. Interestingly, we are only a few blocks from the police station, and yet we are yet to see any police. You can see here, protesters, they've got their bricks. They've got their petrol bombs, and we've seen it all afternoon. Earlier, we were there as protesters were throwing petrol bombs at police, police responding with tear gas, uh, obviously making numerous arrests, but it, it just didn't have the, the impact uh, perhaps that you, you would expect. But we overheard one of the protesters say a little bit earlier that the, the aim of today was to humiliate Xi Jinping, China's president. They believe that they have done that. Their intention now is to set fire to the train station here at Sham Shui Po, the MTR, which is used by so many people. I mean, this is how people get to work here in Hong Kong. But they have uh, vandalised, set fire to Sham Shui Po uh, station. Uh, earlier today, we learned that uh, a police officer fired a live round at a protester. A protester hit the police officer with a pole and the police officer responded by firing a live round. They say that uh, their lives were were threatened and that they had warned the protesters to back off. Uh, we don't know if there were any uh, warning shots. Uh, from what we can see, there were no warning shots. Um, that will no doubt be part of the investigation. Uh, we are yet to learn as well, Julia, as to the condition of that 18-year-old man who, who was shot. Uh, but certainly it really is a, a turning point here in Hong Kong. These protests have been going for 17 weeks now. And, uh, and, and this is the first time that a protester has been shot. Police officers have fired live rounds as, as warning shots. Uh, but as I say, the first time that a protester here in Hong Kong has been shot with a live round, Julia. Yeah, it does feel like a pivotal moment. And there was always the expectation that there was going to be heightened violence today. I mean, there have been graphic images of that shown on, on social media. Protesters saying that what is 70th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party rule is 70 years of repression for, for places like Hong Kong. And, and that's part of what the protest movement represents here. Can you give us any sense of scale? You said 17 weekends now of, of violence in Hong Kong. Is this a heightened response from the police forces? And, and in terms of sheer scale of the protest, is this as big as it's been? As we know, this has been going on since June. It started off as a, a protest movement against that extradition bill, that very controversial extradition bill that would have allowed for extradition to mainland China. Three months in, the city's chief executive, Carrie Lam, finally formally withdrew that bill. But the movement had morphed into so much more. It was about fighting for the freedoms 
that people here in Hong Kong have enjoyed for the last 22 years since the, the handover from Britain to China back in 1997. Uh, they feel that China has been encroaching here in Hong Kong. Even though this is a semi-autonomous region, uh, a special autonomous region, they see... seen uh, earlier and uh, obviously 1,700 people, more than 1,700 people have been arrested and certainly after tonight that uh, that number will go up even higher. They wanted to clamp down, they wanted to make sure that there wasn't the unrest that we are seeing now on first. It's a national day of celebration for, for China, the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party. And yet here in Hong Kong, the shooting of the protester the, the, the violence, the vandalism, the clashes with, with police, that is what is going to make the headlines. That is what is going to perhaps overshadow uh, the, the, the festivities on the mainland. As you can see, the, the fireies. Fire Brigade has turned up now to, to deal with this. in there because uh, we do appear to have lost Anna there but as you can see incredible images coming from uh, from Hong Kong there and uh, to Anna's point as well an escalation a clear pivotal moment in uh, Hong Kong and the defiance there as uh, China celebrates 70 years of Communist Party rule. David I want to bring you in here just to compare and contrast here clearly this is the last thing Beijing wanted to see in Hong Kong though perhaps clearly was expecting it at the same time defiance from Hong Kong but defiance from Beijing too with a huge military display talk us through what we've seen today Julia contrast is is the word that comes to mind you mentioned it there Anna was showing you some of the fires that were being lit there we have fireworks here a, a mood of celebration. That's what they're trying to get across. Now, I should point out where we are. In fact, let me just give you a little context here. Natalie, if we can just show here the Tiananmen Gate. This will allow you to kind of see where we are. It's not going to look pretty because we're in the midst of a stand, but this will allow you to, to take in the historic setting that we have here. And this has been a very secured area invited guests only, Julia, so that doesn't mean that the general public who live here in Beijing can just walk up here and take this all in. And I say that to, to point out that it's tough to gauge from where I'm standing the genuine patriotism that we're seeing here versus the highly scripted choreography that has been rehearsed for weeks leading up to this day. As you mentioned, the military might. That's how this day started. A massive parade that went down Chang'an Avenue, the main strip just behind me here. And that was China's opportunity to show the world its new technology when it comes to military and defense. And so you see that, and perhaps the suggestion is one that might be threatening. China says this is not about threatening. It's simply saying that we will not be subdued. We will not be pressured. 
They didn't mention the United States, but alluding to Western countries. And they say more than anything else, it should be perhaps reassuring to see some of this military might because China believes itself to be a safeguard of global stability and ultimately security. So that's why they felt the need to showcase that. Meantime, you look at what is uh, in the midst of kind of really controversy here in China and really obstacles that they've been facing, many challenges. Julia, you and I have been talking about the economic issues here, certainly with the trade war, one that has had deep domestic cuts here. The folks are, are hesitant when it comes to spending. They've had uh, issues with pork prices recently, which is their staple meat. And so this is a moment where they're trying to take the unrest in Hong Kong, the economic instability, the U.S. trade war, and they're trying to push that aside and replace it, at least for this moment, with celebration, with joy. But you can bet those challenges will simply resurface in the days to come. Yeah, it's a perfect storm, really. David, fantastic to have you with us. David Culver there and, of course, Anna Corrin over in Hong Kong. We uh, want to stay safe. Later in the show, we'll head back to Beijing for the latest there. And uh, coming up as well, we'll be speaking to Victor Gao. He's the vice president for uh, Centre for China and Globalization. So we'll be speaking to him. All right, let's move on to our next driver over back to the United States, the impeachment inquiry widening. Rudy Giuliani has been subpoenaed for documents related to his apparent role in pressuring the Ukrainians for dirt on Joe Biden. It's also emerged the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, was on that July 25th phone call. In the meantime, a source tells CNN the president recently pressed Australia's prime minister to help the attorney general Bill Barr with his investigation of the origins of the Mueller Russia investigation into election interference. Evan Perez joins us now from Washington. Wowzers is all I can say at this moment. Just help us for international viewers in particular, what do we need to understand and what are the important implications of the developments in the last 12 hours or so? Well, there's a number of uh, important parts of this and that one of them has to do with Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer who was traveling to Ukraine, going to meet with government officials there to press this idea that they needed to help with uh, you know, uncovering uh, any new information that they could about the uh, about Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden and their business his, uh, Hunter Biden's did business dealings in Ukraine. Now, uh, the importance of that is twofold. One of the things that, that Rudy Giuliani has done is he's gone out for, uh, out front on television and, and and essentially admitted to all of this. And so, one of the questions will be, you know, if the members of Congress are able to subpoena documents from him, let's say he fights it. Uh, will courts look at the fact that Rudy Giuliani has been on television? He's actually shown copies of some of his, uh, what he says were, were some of his communications uh, as reason to keep that from uh, the members of Congress. I think that's going to be very difficult. But all of this is tied into, as you pointed out, this investigation that's been ongoing here in Washington, looking back at 2016 and looking at what happened uh, with the beginnings of what we be, what we, we came to know as the Mueller investigation. Rudy Giuliani has been very much at the center of that, and, uh, and so is the Attorney General, Bill Barr. Uh, the Justice Department is telling us that uh, at the urging of the Attorney General, the President recently pressed the Australian Prime Minister to provide some assistance to this investigation. Now, let me tell you a little bit of, uh, of the backdrop of that. Uh, the Trump people supporting the, the president believe that a lot of what happened in the Mueller investigation came about 
uh, because intelligence agencies overseas were providing information to the FBI that they believe were essentially false. And so that's one of the things that they are continuing to pursue, the idea that the Mueller investigation should never have been done and to undermine the, the legitimacy of that investigation. So there's two fronts uh, for the Trump administration here. As you pointed out, there's so many players, including Mike Pompeo, who was on that phone call now that we've, uh, that we've now been discussing, the phone call between the President uh, Trump and the Ukrainian president. Wow. I guess my main observation here is how quickly this is moving and the investigation is progressing. Evan, fantastic Absolutely. to have you with us. And thanks for that, Evan Perez over in D.C. there. All right. On to our next driver. The Credit Suisse COO, the chief operating officer, has resigned over a spying scandal. He ordered surveillance on the outgoing head of wealth management. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, you do get the most interesting stories. It reads like a script from a reality TV show or perhaps a movie, except it's real. What do we know and what are the companies saying? Well, before we get to car chases and cocktail parties, which we can oh. get to, let's just talk about the facts around this case, because they're pretty thin on the ground if you compare it to all the colourful reporting around this. The CEO resigned, as you said, with immediate effect, and that's after the board today released their findings on the so-called surveillance scandal. Now, the CEO, without knowledge of the CEO, Tijan Tiam, uh, he ordered an investigation into a former employee. That is called Iqbal Khan. He was the head of uh, the wealth management arm of of Credit Suisse, and he joined UBS, a rival firm, and there were some concerns that Khan could poach um, employees of Credit Suisse. However, the board today said it was wrong, it was disproportionate to order this firm to observe him, and that has resulted in severe reputational damage to the bank. But Julia, what has added more, I would say, to the severe reputational damage to the bank is possibly all the crazy, colourful lines we've had around the story. Uh, talk us through some of them, because at this stage, and I think this is an important thing, uh, Tijan Tiam, of course, the, the CEO, is being backed by the board, but uh, also seems to have a, a sort of colourful relationship with his former head of wealth management. And, and everyone thought Switzerland was boring and, and neutral, and it's, it turns out it's incredibly <laughs> quite exciting. It sounds very exciting. Let me run you through some unconfirmed Swiss media reports that the CEO and Ipgal Khan weren't just colleagues, they were also neighbours in a very exclusive area of Lake Zurich and there were some personal uh, issues and confrontationals over their two houses, particularly uh, a spat about trees, as I understand, at a cocktail party that also involved their partners. Secondly, there's a line that uh, Khan realised he was being observed by this firm that was following him around and tried to get away from them. He did that through uh, with erratic car-chasing manoeuvres around Lake Zurich. Um, thirdly, that there was an alleged public altercation between Khan and the firm that was investigating him once he realised that they were tailing him. Now, I won't get into the details of that because that is actually part of a separate criminal investigation also going on right now. But, you know, Juliet, while this is all very embarrassing for the bank, it hasn't really done anything to the share price. And I find this perhaps surprising because this really raises issues of the culture of Credit Suisse, of corporate governance, the idea that a COO could uh, call shots all on his own on something so sensitive without the knowledge of the board and without the knowledge of the CEO. Julia? Yeah, the extent you go to to uh, protect talent, it seems. Like a James Bond movie. Anna Stewart, great job. Thank you for that. Right, we're going to take a quick break. We're a bit, all a bit astonished here. But coming up, a well-oiled machine. Saudi Aramco's offering ahead of a potential public offering. That's to come. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Minutes away from the opening bell this Tuesday and joined by Brian Levitt, who is global market strategist at Invesco. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be back. You asked a great question in your notes this week saying, is it too late to be defensive in these markets? And I believe that it is. I mean, the time to be defensive was during this like deep concern about the Fed being too tight, the administration going too far on trade. I mean, that was really the 10-year rate going to 150. That was the time to be defensive. We're seeing yields up a bit, a little bit of a steepening of the yield curve. That should favor the more cyclical parts of the market. Does the data need to follow? Because to your point, the defensive have done really well here. Bond proxies, utilities, yeah. real estate this year have done incredibly well. Yeah. And of course, the data does need to follow. I mean, basically what you had was the market and business sentiment really seizing up amid concerns about a policy mistake. And that's driving the manufacturing data down and that drove yields down. What 2020 or the end of 2019 hopefully becomes is more of a time of policy clarity ah. and some improvements in sentiment, a little bit of improvement in growth. You also asked a great question, I thought, was does the U.S. administration where arguably a lot of the policy concern is emanating yeah. from, particularly as far as trade is concerned, does this administration become intimidated <laughs> by the economics, by the data, even by the markets potentially. Yeah. So that was a great quote from James Carville in 1994 when he said if he can come back as anything in life, he doesn't want to be a baseball hitter or a baseball player or a pope. He wants to come back as the bond market so he can intimidate everybody. everybody. So yeah. that's what 150 on, and 10 year was. That's what the inverted yield curve was. The bond market intimidating policymakers. Now the Fed has backed off and we're waiting for the administration. I personally think it's going to be very hard for the president to go in a re-election year with a strong dollar, an inverted yield curve, the ISM manufacturing surveys trending lower. I mean, that's a difficult package for re-election. So yeah, I think the bond market has been intimidating policymakers to, to change course. And potentially an ongoing trade war and a battle between the Democrats and the Republicans. Risks to any form of policy, including signing off things like um, the Mexican-Canadian United States trade agreement right. as well. I mean, a lot right. of things are being threatened by the politics. Does the market care about impeachment, House impeachment? House impeachment? Um, no, I mean, the market doesn't like uncertainty, but you can go back. I mean, you can look at the Clinton administration. The market initially fell 20% when Monica Lewinsky agreed to meet with the, with the special uh, prosecutor. Um, the market had recovered all of that by the time the House voted to impeach. The market was up over 80% during Clinton's second term. So, Little bit of a different story during Nixon, but that was inflation going from 2% to 15%. So this is a different backdrop. I would say for the more tactically minded investors, get the big macro story right. It's modest growth, modest inflation, and a Fed that's easy. That should be a good backdrop for risk assets. By the way, if you invested $100,000 on the Saturday night massacre in 1973, oh it would now be worth $10.5 million. So I don't think the markets worry that much about impeachment. Get the bigger story right. Are central banks ultimately the backstop here? Do you care more about governors of central banks, presidents of central yeah. banks than you do about political leaders right no, now? No, I do, I do. And, yeah. and the thing about central banks is the central banks aren't going to be able to get us to new, some new magical level of growth. They're not getting us to 3-4% GDP growth. But what they can do is help take off some of this pressure on the U.S. dollar. They can ease financial conditions. Um, and that should help to start to reflate the economy, continue to reflate asset prices. And that's really what the central banks are trying to do. Raise some inflation expectations, get us to shop, get us to invest, and, 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 and that should be that should persist for, I think, for some time now. And allow the politicians just to fight amongst themselves. <laughs>
Brian. Fantastic to have you with Thank us you. again. Brian Levitt, Global Market Strategist at Invesco there. We are counting down to the market open this Tuesday. Stay with us. Plenty more to come from First Move. Welcome back to First Move. That was the opening bell here for the second session of the week in US stocks, seeing a positive open at this point. Remember, we've got the Chinese and the Hong Kong stock markets overnight shut. Europe, the handover, pretty positive. I'm just looking at the German markets here, actually, uh, managing to uh, push into positive territory. A lot going on, of course, and the World Trade Organization slashing its global outlook for uh, trade going forward. And as we've discussed throughout the show again, the risks surrounding this clearly dominant for what we see in the fourth quarter of this year. Let me bring it back to our top story quickly. The massive demonstrations in Hong Kong as China celebrates 70 years of Communist Party rule. The clashes between police and protesters in Hong Kong have turned violent once again today with one of the pro-democracy demonstrators actually being shot in the chest. Ivan Watson is on the ground in Hong Kong with all the details. Ivan, talk us through, it's been an incredibly violent several hours in Hong Kong. That's right. And in this part of Hong Kong now, it's kind of the, the, the mess after the protests where uh, you have a, a central business district uh, still littered with kind of the, the, the remnants of what police described as a, quote unquote, unauthorized assembly. What protesters say was their right to come out on what's supposed to be a patriotic holiday for China and show their opposition to Communist Party rule in mainland China, their opposition to the government government here uh, in this semi-autonomous region of Hong Kong. As you pointed out, uh, there was, uh, for the first time, uh, a demonstrator wounded with uh, a lethal round, a live round fired from a police officer's pistol. Uh, the police have confirmed that an 18-year-old was shot in the shoulder. The video we have seen uh, illustrates uh, a real melee between protesters wielding uh, poles and police and and at one point, it appears that a police officer pulled his sidearm and fired at very close range at the demonstrator. To give you a sense of just the atmosphere of the protesters on, again, what's supposed to be a patriotic holiday, the celebration of the 70th anniversary of the creation of the People's Republic of China. Instead, here you have graffiti that says things like free Hong Kong and further up here, anti-Chi-Nazi. Chi-Nazi becoming this derogatory term that uh, the protesters, the opposition here in Hong Kong have used for mainland China, the Communist Party, um, and by extension, the security forces and the government here in this former British colony. What's very disturbing is that this is nearly four months of this cycle of escalating confrontation, and it seems there is no off-ramp from this, no political solution to bring an end to the turmoil that's really hurting the economy of this city. Julia? Yeah, huge challenges. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for bringing us up to date there, and uh, stay safe. 
That violence, a world away from the pomp and parades that we saw today in Beijing, where Chinese President Xi Jinping has been presiding over a huge military march down the city's avenue of eternal peace, telling huge crowds no force can stop the Chinese people. Joining us now from Beijing is Victor Gao, who's director of the China National Association of International Studies. So Victor, fantastic to have you on the show. 70 years of Communist Party rule being Thank celebrated you. in Thank Beijing. The protesters are calling it 70 years of repression in some cases. What's your response to what we've seen today? Well, today is a day of national celebration. People throughout the country are very happy uh, joining all kinds of celebrations and the celebration of the Tiananmen Square just concluded with firecrackers and fire shows for example and I think this is a day of national rejuvenation people throughout country are very proud of China's achievements and transformation over the past 70 years I think in Hong Kong there is a political campaign very much motivated for bad will and they are designed to do damage to the basic law of Hong Kong and to do damage to one country, one uh, two-system principle and also to undermine rule of law and law and order. This is very dangerous. No violence in Hong Kong should be expected to last forever. Something needs to be done to bring law and order back to Hong Kong, hopefully as soon as possible. What is that something? Is there a political solution here or in your mind is now the time for China to, to step in and stop this? Many people are surprised that China allowed the violence that we saw in Hong Kong today and didn't do more to prevent it. Well, first of all, the fact that such political events took place in Hong Kong for the past four months is a vindication that mainland China is not involved in interfering in the situation in Hong Kong. The primary responsibility of maintaining law and order in Hong Kong squarely rests with the Hong Kong SAR government, with the chief executive Carrie Lam, and with the local police force. However, if they cannot step up and do the job of restoring law and order to Hong Kong, sooner or later something else needs to be done. And according to the basic law, the central government actually has the right to step in to assist the Hong Kong SAR government or to take actions uh, in its own discretion to make sure that law and order are restored to Hong Kong. I would venture to say some of the activities which have taken place, especially more recently, are on the verge of treason and justice will have long arm and eventually justice will be done and justice will prevail in Hong Kong against such violence, atrocities and destruction of rule of law in Hong Kong. How long do you think the Chinese government is willing to allow this to go on? To your point, at some point you feel like the Chinese government will see it as their right to step in to stop this. How long before that happens? Well, if you read very carefully the basic law, then there are very specific stipulations and processes which would enable the Hong Kong SAR government to request the assistance of the central government or for the central government through the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress to take 
a decision to declare emergency in Hong Kong so that the central government can declare part or all the PRC law to be applicable to Hong Kong for a period of time. And I hope this will not happen in the foreseeable future. But if violence continues and further deteriorates, if attacks on police officers continue, definitely something needs to be done. And either the Hong Kong SR government will need to make a request to the central government or the central government in Beijing will need to make a decision to declare emergency in Hong Kong. Hopefully, one way or the other, the law and order will be restored to Hong Kong. No civil society in the whole world will tolerate such duration of unsustainability, of violence and atrocities and uh, criminality as which have already happened in Hong Kong in recent months. Victor, there are those that look at this situation and actually say China's been backed into a corner here. Growth is weakening. Hong Kong is financially, in particular, strategically important for financial flows in and out of China here. The risk of the discontent, the revolution spreading from Hong Kong back into the mainland is a huge risk. Is there a danger here for, for China in acting too, for many reasons? No, I think uh, the analysis is probably not based on very solid uh, fact. Now, from the Chinese mainland's perspective, of course, all of us care about what's happening in Hong Kong. However, based on the scale and the magnitude of China as a whole, as an economy, for example, the situation in Hong Kong, even though it's very painful and traumatic, can be best be described as a storm in a teacup. It is not going to have a major impact on the growth momentum of China as a country or the Chinese economy as an e economy. And going forward, for example, whatever the central government and the Hong Kong SAR government will decide to do together, for example, will definitely uh, achieve the goal of restoring law and order. And please allow me to emphasize the word restoring law and order because Hong Kong and the people in Hong Kong cannot afford to have long protracted loss of law and order in Hong Kong. It's bad for Hong Kong, it's bad for China, it's bad for the whole world. Therefore, I firmly believe law and order to be restored is the only right way for Hong Kong. So very quickly, do, do you have any sympathy for particularly the young people there that want to enjoy the same kind of freedoms that people have in the West that they've experienced themselves? and they just want to fight for their rights. Do, do you understand and do you have any sympathy for the people and, and what they're doing right now? What they're asking for? I have a lot of sympathy. I have a lot of sympathy for the legitimate requests of the people in Hong Kong, including those who are engaged in legitimate and lawful demonstrations. Keep in mind, please, that Hong Kong is a democracy and the Hong Kong law does protect people's legal right to protest and demonstrate. However, if there is illegal gathering, for example, illegal demonstration and protests, they will be dealt with by law in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has a deeply entrenched tradition of rule of law, and people actually should know what is the lawful thing and what is the illegal thing. And I hope people in Hong Kong will lean towards abiding by the law rather than attacking rule of law 
And whatever other legitimate requests people may have in Hong Kong, let's talk about it to the Hong Kong SAR government or to the trade unions, to the student unions, etc. But the bottom line is that no one in Hong Kong is allowed to resort to violence and atrocities and attacking the police. Police force in Hong Kong has a job to do. They are paid to do a job. They are constructed, they are institutionalized to do a job. And that job is to maintain the stability in Hong Kong and defend rule and law in Hong Kong and law and order in Hong Kong. That's the bottom line. Yes, it's how we align those of everyone trying to preserve that democracy going forward. So fantastic to have you with us and we'll get you back, please. Plenty more to discuss, I'm sure. Victor Gao, fantastic to have you with us. Director of the China National Association of International Studies. After the break, as the US and China fight over trade, PayPal manages to squeeze its way into China's crowded digital payment system market. We'll assess the chances of success. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. PayPal making its first move in China, being granted a license to provide digital payment services. It's bought a majority stake in GoPay, and that makes it the first foreign firm to get that license. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, very exciting for PayPal. Talk us through the deal here and also some pretty stiff competition in the form of WeChat and Alipay here. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is extremely significant for PayPal. Uh, they uh, have bought, as you say, a 70% stake uh, in a Chinese local player called GoPay, which essentially does uh, a similar thing to what, what PayPal does uh, outside of China, which is, you know, provide uh, the ability for, for websites and other applications to, 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 to process payments without you having to input your credit card details or, or, or bank details. So essentially a, a go-between. And this is significant because, of course, uh, it's coming ahead of the next round of trade talks. And for years, well before the Trump administration, the U.S. has been pushing China to open up uh, its payment system, to open up opportunities for the likes of, of MasterCard, Visa, other credit card companies. Those are still basically shut out of China. So this is a significant step. Uh, but, uh, but as you say, it's a very crowded marketplace. Uh, China is dominated by the likes of WeChat Pay and Alipay. They have evolved and grown to dominate that marketplace, largely because of the protectionist policies uh, enacted by the Chinese government. And they uh, are, are now huge players. So I think uh, the big question here is, will PayPal be, be able to, to really make inroads into this market? It looks like they're going to be uh, doing more kind of, of, of e-commerce type transactions cross-border, perhaps they say in their statement, uh, we look forward to partnering with China's financial institutions and technology platforms, providing a more comprehensive set of payment solutions to businesses and consumers, both in China and globally. I tried to clarify with the company if they're going to just be going through GoPay or whether they'll be able to operate under the PayPal name uh, in China, and they would not confirm that to me. Mm, interesting, because Visa and MasterCard are still waiting. So is this a, a, a even playing field here in the equal treatment for foreign and domestic firms that China promised or, or not? Well, I mean, it's still, you know, essentially, uh, it's, it's not a direct license even, Julia. They're still doing this through an acquisition, which is really kind of a side door into this market. And it's not even a full acquisition. It's a 70% stake. And we saw, you know, there was there was another kind of minor concession last year when, when American Express was granted uh, the license to start building up its own payments clearing uh, system in China. But again, that was through a joint venture. So, you know, as they say in their statement, where we look forward to partnering with China's financial institutions, you have to partner with local players still to be able to gain access uh, to this market. So I think that pretty much 
uh, says it all. Yes, I think I know what the U.S. administration would say in this case. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, on to another interesting story here now as well. Saudi Aramco saying it will issue a dividend as it prepares for its $2 trillion IPO. The firm says full oil production has been restored too following the attacks in September. Matt Egan has more. Well, good news on the former point, better news also on the latter. Talk us through the two. Saudi Aramco is flexing its financial muscles here, Julia. The giant oil company is pledging to pay a $75 billion dividend. Now, this is not a one-time dividend. This is an annual dividend that the company plans to pay for the, each of the next five years. Now, it's a ridiculous amount of money that shows just how large and how profitable Aramco really is. Now, just to put some context around this $75 billion figure, it's more than five times what ExxonMobil paid in annual dividends last year. It's $16 billion more than Apple's entire annual profit. And it's more than the combined market valuations of Ford and FedEx. So it's, it's a lot of money. But I think that there's two big takeaways here. One, the kingdom is really serious about trying to get as rich of a valuation as possible on this Aramco IPO. And they're doing that by trying to woo investors with something that they love, dividends. The other thing here is that Aramco is clearly trying to uh, show some confidence in its financial stability, even after those attacks that you just mentioned from last month. Um, clearly, Aramco feels confident enough to make, come out and make this promise, Julia. Yes, and eagle-eyed viewers will know I mentioned it was a $2 trillion IPO, and most analysts think it's going to be more like one to one and a half. It's going to be fascinating to see. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that update there. All right, coming up on First Move, Donald Trump's campaign just spent up to $2 million to make fresh friends on Facebook. We'll tell you what he wants to do with his so-called task force next. Welcome back to First Move. President Trump's re-election campaign just spent up to $2 million on Facebook ads. They focus on the impeachment inquiry in an effort, it seems, to rile up supporters on the social network and to get them to hand over their details. Tony O'Sullivan joins us now. Well, we know what ads are all about, and he was straight on Twitter as well, presenting his side of the story as far as the impeachment is concerned. Why do we need to be worried about this, Tony? Talk us through it. Trump really is the master of social media. If you think about how he uses his Twitter, that's where he broadcasts out messages to the world and he can very often drive the news agenda. And his campaign, unlike any other campaign, you know, he, the spending and tactics they use on Facebook eclipse anything any of the Democratic candidates are doing. And over just the past week, the Trump campaign has run 1,800 uh, different ads on Facebook, some of which uh, you see there and has spent up to $2 million uh, trying to um, attack the impeachment uh, inquiry and to um, to recruit people essentially to join what he is calling the official impeachment defense task force. Now, if you think when you hear 1800 ads, a lot of these ads do look the same. But what 1800 means is they have come up with 1800 different audiences to target. So some of these ads are targeting people in Virginia. Some of them are targeting in Texas. Some might be targeting just women in California. Uh, the Trump campaign, of course, has a massive data set uh, of voters, potential voters all across the country. So they're really mining in on that. Over the past 18 months or so, Trump has spent 20 
million dollars on Facebook ads. So he's a very uh, a, a very important customer for the social media platform. Okay, so ultimately there's nothing wrong with this. You can take out ads. Couple of questions for me very quickly. Is Facebook fact checking these ads, whether they're from Donald Trump and the Republicans or from the Democrat candidates as well? And isn't this a medium that's being investigated for election interference or facilitating election interference in, in 2016? And yet again, we've got presidential candidates and the president using it as a medium to promote themselves. Yeah, to your I first don't know what question. To say about this. <laughs> sure. To, to your first question, Facebook is not fact checking these ads. So, Facebook, we all know about the misinformation and fake news that spread on, on Facebook throughout 2016. To try and get a handle on that, Facebook is working with third party fact checkers to uh, fact check videos like the Nancy Pelosi video from a few months ago. Even though Facebook did not take that down off the platform, their third party fact checkers deemed it to be false and they downranked it so it would be seen by less people. Nick Clegg, the former Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom who now uh, works for Facebook, announced last week and confirmed an existing policy where Facebook will not fact check politicians' posts. Um, So you can essentially uh, pay Facebook to spread false information. Cringe. You can pay Facebook to be an echo chamber for false information. And that's the punchline. Donny, fantastic to have you with us. Donny O'Sullivan there. Wow. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.